Today's scripture passage comes from the book of John, chapter 17, verses 1 through 5. Listen now for the word of the Lord. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, and that the, the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, welcome. Um, we had a, our leaders, uh, semi-annual leaders meeting uh, yesterday, and uh, it was really a, just a, a great time together. And uh, I was told that at the retreat that's coming up in two weeks, um, there might be some sort of quiz or challenge related to the New City Catechism. So those of you who uh, tend to be a little competitive... You may want to review the uh, questions and answers before the retreat. Um, I know registration is closed, but I've been told that we had one recent cancellation, so there is apparently uh, one more room. So if you haven't signed up yet, um, you might want to, I don't know, you may have to fight for that last spot. Um, we have, I think, 120 people or so already signed up, so um, it's, it should be a really a, just a wonderful time together. And so I encourage you to uh, continue to please uh, pray for that time. And look forward to that. All right. Uh, for those of you uh, who are new to our service, um, we've been going through the New City Catechism now for uh, a year. And we're, we have just two questions left today and next week. And then we'll be uh, finished with the New City Catechism. And so um, as we've been doing, we want to review uh, this last third section uh, related to the work of the Holy Spirit. And so let's review uh, together by reciting together the answers Uh, to the questions, uh, beginning with number 36. What do we believe about the Holy Spirit? How does the Holy Spirit help us? What is prayer? What is the Lord's prayer? How is the word of God to be read and heard? What are the sacraments or ordinances? What is baptism? What is the Lord's Supper? What is the church? 
Where is Christ now? And today's question number 50 is, what does Christ's resurrection mean for us? And the longer answer is, Christ triumphed over sin and death so that all who trust in him are raised to new life in this world and to everlasting life in the world to come. But we're going to memorize a shortened version. All who trust in him are raised to new and everlasting life. Let's pray together. Lord, we we come this day from scattered lives to this shared space, the sanctuary, to seek the unity of your spirit, to seek the grace of our Lord Jesus, and to seek the peace of God the Father. And so we would ask once again, in all humbleness, that you would open our hearts and our minds to hear your word. And give us the strength to obey. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. The reading today from the 17th chapter of the Gospel of John is what is known sometimes as the other Lord's Prayer. It's the prayer that Jesus prays for himself and for his disciples right before his betrayal, before his crucifixion. And it's the longest prayer that we have that Jesus prayed And it comes at the end of a long series of talks that he gives to the disciples. Uh, Four chapters in the Gospel of John are devoted to Jesus giving last-minute teachings to his disciples. And at the end of that teaching comes this very long prayer. And the first part of this prayer, the thing that's on his mind as he's about to go to the cross, as you just heard, is mostly about glory. That word glory just just comes up again and again in these five verses. And so I want to begin today with a little word study on this word glory. In Greek, the verbal form of the word glory originally meant to seem or to appear or to have an opinion. And so in Galatians 2, for example, Paul will use this word to talk about having met these uh, apostles of reputation and he's... He, kind of take, he, he takes a little dig at them, kind of like, uh, um, like Jalen Ramsey style, like a little, little poke. He says, you know, they seem like they were these great leaders. They appear to be these, you know, leaders of the church as if he doesn't quite, you know, believe it or that it doesn't really matter. So they seem to be like this. Uh, later on, this word, the noun form of it, doxa, uh, came to mean not just to have an opinion, but to have a good opinion, that which merits a good opinion. And so the word uh, we have in English today, for example, in um, uh, like paradox or the doxology that we sing uh, at the end. Um, And so it became to be translated as praise or honor, fame, renown, and so on. And when this word was used to speak of kings or of God, it then meant the highest Opinion, the highest good, the highest honor and praise. And so um, when we talk about, you know, to be orthodox, that means we are to have a straight or a correct opinion about God. And that is, what is God or who is God? And that is that God is the the highest possible good. And so in the Christian tradition, uh, as people begin to think about it this way, God's 
character then became a way to talk about the glory of God. Because God is the highest good in God's love, in God's power, in God's holiness. And so to speak of the glory of God was to speak of the the character or the attributes of God in its highest form. And, And that is one aspect, that is one aspect of what it means when we talk about the glory of God. And that's what Jesus is getting at here. This is one piece of it. And it is this glory the character of God that Jesus reveals to us fully in the incarnation. So this glory, this this revelation of who God is, Jesus in his incarnation fully revealed to his disciples and to us. It's the perfect glory that he had from all eternity. But then there is another aspect of glory which is not as fully revealed to us, And because you see here in verse 5, Jesus prays, glorify me in your own presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. So he's asking for some glory to be restored to him, which he apparently laid aside when he was incarnated. And so it can't be about the character of God because that was fully in him. He was fully divine in his incarnation and in his humanity. So this other glory has to do with something else. And this other thing, this other piece of glory, is what the New Testament writers, the Old Testament writers talk about. And the way God is described often, it's this idea of glory that is shining. What some of the ancients refer to as the Shekinah glory of God. When you see God appearing in the Old Testament in particular, you see that God's presence is indicated by the presence of light, of brilliance. Moses first meets God you know, in a burning bush where God speaks. There's fire there. When Moses goes to the mountains, it's filled with light. When Solomon builds the temple and the Spirit of God fills the temple, there's this overwhelming brilliance. And the visions of God throughout the scriptures, people see just this blinding light. And we get a hint of this in the New Testament when Jesus is on the mountain and he is transfigured before a few of his disciples. And they said he was so bright, so bright. And and that is a part of the glory of God that was given a glimpse to his disciples, but is kind of hidden. And that's the part of glory that Jesus is asking to be restored as he returns to the Father. And so, when we talk about, and and, you know, we we use this language too, when we talk about, you know, God is light, for example, and Jesus himself said, I am the light of the world. So so there is a sense in which the glory of God, or a description, or a way that is communicated to us, is of this brilliance, this, this light. And so before the incarnation, we can say that Jesus embodied both aspects of glory, both the character of God and this glowing, this this Shekinah glory of God. And that is the glory to which he will now return as he returns um, after the cross. And so he says to the Father, glorify me as I've glorified you by completing the work. And here he's referring to the cross and the redemption and the reconciling of the world to himself through the cross, God is glorified on the cross because it most fully demonstrates God's character. 
The cross most fully demonstrates the glory of God. God's power, God's justice, God's love, it, it all comes together on the cross. Um, paradoxically, the cross is a place of shame and death, and yet here we see the fullness of the glory of God. And so in the middle of this prayer for glory, Jesus says in verse 3, here's what this glory is all about. The Father has given the Son the authority for eternal life. Jesus' authority and the work that he completes on the cross makes eternal life and participation in his glory possible for us. And then comes the word for us today. The catechism teaches us that all who trust in Jesus are raised to new and everlasting life. We are raised to new and everlasting life. And I know it's very tempting for us uh, to kind of speculate about what that eternal life looks like, what heaven might be like, and so on. But, you know, it's so helpful when Jesus gives us these really clear definitions. And he gives it to us in verse 3. He says, this is eternal life. Like, you can't get clearer than that. Like, this is eternal life. That they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. That's the definition of eternal life. And so, I want to work with this definition today, and I want to make three uh, reflections about what this tells us about eternal life. First thing you notice in this definition, according to Jesus, eternal life has nothing to do with the duration of life. We think of eternal life or everlasting life as this just prolonged period of time. But in this definition, it has nothing to do with the length of life. You know, when Christians sometimes talk about salvation and eternal life and heaven, it, it sounds really boring to non-Christians, Right? It sounds really boring to some Christians too, right? Because people say something sometimes like, you know, heaven is going to be like, like the best worship service ever, and it goes on and on and on forever, right? Um, I mean, some of you think like a 30-minute sermon is long, so imagine an everlasting worship service, right? Now, even if there are things that you really enjoy, like things that you love to do, it, it's hard in our sort of understanding of the way time works, to think about doing that as much as you enjoy it, just going on and on. Like, like even, think about even like the best vacation you ever had. Like, it was good, it was great, but like if that goes on for a hundred years, I mean, can you imagine? Maybe you're thinking, okay, maybe that won't be so bad, but like really the things that are the most enjoyable to you, if it just continues to go on and on and on, um, you won't, you can't enjoy it endlessly. Uh, I know that for uh, most people, most of the time, I mean, there are periods in your life, middle school, the first three months of having a baby where time just goes slow and you just want to get through that period. But, you know, for most people, as you kind of uh, reflect on your life, there is a sense of just the, the, the brevity of life, right? That life has just gone by so fast, you know? Um, just feels like I was in my 20s just, just a few days ago, and here I am now, you know, a little older than that. You know, and you think about, you know, your kids going off, and they're growing, and you think, I can't believe, you know, these kids, you know, 
most of the kids at this church, you know, I was there when they were born, and now they're like in middle school and high school, and some are off to college. I mean, it's, it's hard, and you think like, wow, time has gone by so fast. I wish I could slow time down for, for a little bit. Sometimes you're, you're swamped with things that you got to do, and you wish you just had a little more time, you know, to spend with your kids or, or to get a project done at work or to, you know, take, some, take a little break. And so, th- so there's this constant struggle with time, wishing we had more of it, and that, that it's going by uh, too fast. I think that's a very common uh, experience. And of course, we, we do everything we can to, to resist death or to, to push it a little further away from us. And, and we wish for our loved ones, uh, those who have passed on, we, we wish we could have had a little more time with them. And so most of the time, I think, when people are thinking about eternal life, it's, it's in these terms, thinking about more time or having more time you know, to, to, to stretch it out somehow. <clears throat> there is an uh, instructive Greek myth about the goddess Eos or Aurora, uh, um, I guess in, in uh, the Roman version of it, uh, about a... Uh, so it's a love story of sorts. So Eos is in love with this uh, human prince. Um, his name is uh, Thithinus. And she falls in love with him. And so uh, Zeus kind of um, becomes sympathetic to their love. And so he tells Eos, you can have any wish you want uh, for this mortal. And so Eos uh, wishes that he could live forever because she's a goddess and so she lives forever and so she says, I wish that you know, my lover could live forever so that we can be together forever and so Zeus grants her uh, this wish. He gets to live forever and they enjoy their life together eternally for, for a brief moment but then it, the story takes a kind of a, a twilight zone, you know, a, a Henry kind of twist at the and he lives forever but he grows older and older and older. And so as she continues to live with him, you know, she sees him just, his body just decaying. And so what she should have wished for is eternal youth, not eternal life. And you know, we know what this is like. We don't want eternity, or when we think about we want to have more life, we, we think of having more good life. We're not thinking about just life as we get older. And most of us have gone through with our parents or others where we see them aging and the suffering that uh, aging brings on. And and we don't want that to continue and last and get worse endlessly. We we don't want that for anyone. We don't want that kind of suffering. And and so it's not just about living forever. Um, So what if then you could live forever with a young, healthy body. Would that, be, would that be good? Is that what we want? You know, I, as you know, I'm a big fan of science fiction. And so much of it, or a, a, good, number of, a good number of pieces uh, in science fiction, uh, asks this question, you know, what would life look like if people could live longer, uh, you know, with healthy bodies? Wouldn't that be great? You know, wouldn't that mean that you could, like, you can finally take piano lessons because you're going to have a lot of time to learn how to do that. You know, you can, um, you can play football and get hurt, and it's okay because you're going to get a, a new body, right? People think about all the benefits, all the good things that could happen if you could live 
longer or forever, and you could have a good, healthy uh, body. But in all the stories, it's really interesting, uh, in, in all of them, it turns out that that is not a good thing. And, and maybe it's, it has to not be a good thing, otherwise there wouldn't be much of a story. Um, but in all the stories, I think there, there's a kind of a realistic understanding of human nature. That if we had more time, we would not, all of us, most of us, would not use that time, extra time, to do better things, to improve ourselves, to, to work for the betterment of humanity or for the world. That what happens in all of these stories is that as people have more time, they become crueler. They need more stimulation because they get bored. There's a boredom that sets in over time, and people need ever-increasing like stimulation, and so they become more and more cruel in their being. I mean, think about yourself. Think about your worst quality, the worst trait that you have. You know, maybe it's anger. Maybe it's jealousy. Now, now imagine that just getting trending worse for all eternity. And that's what you have to live with. That's what you have to live with. And so just making life longer um, isn't really that helpful. And that is not what Jesus is talking about when he says this is eternal life. It has nothing to do with simply living longer. Secondly, according to Jesus, it has nothing to do with the, qu- the, the quantity of life, we could say, and everything really to do with the quality of that life. Jesus said elsewhere, you know, I've come that they might have life and have it abundantly. It's speaking about a quality of life. Um, you know, I, <clears throat> I thought that if I had been a part of the, the committee that put the New City Catechism together, um, <clears throat> I would have suggested that instead of saying that uh, we are, those who trust in Christ are raised to new and everlasting life, rather than everlasting life, uh, I would have suggested we replace that word with eternal life. Everlasting and eternal, you know, I know there's synonyms, but everlasting kind of emphasizes this sort of duration, the, the quantity aspect of time, um, whereas eternal is, is not necessarily about duration. Um, because what the Bible talks about, uh, about eternal life, especially in the Gospel of John, eternal life is not about duration. It's about the, the quality of life. Uh, Brenda Colgen, in her book, uh, Images of Salvation in the New Testament, argues that eternal life in the Bible is not about quantity, but about quality. Eternal life, she writes, is qualitatively different from mortal human life. It is the life by which God himself lives. Eternal describes the kind of life, the kind of life that one has in Christ. Uh, similarly, C.S. Lewis imagined uh, this world, as Plato did, as the Shadowlands, that we are living, as it were, in, in a cave, that this world is but a shadow of the world that is to come. And so he describes eternal life um, as further up and further in, in his uh, children's books, The Chronicles of Narnia. It's more real. That's the way he tries to communicate what eternal life looks like. So, so there, there are more colors Right? You're, you're human and you're embodied, but you, know, you have more energy. You can, you can run up mountains without getting tired. There, there is a, a, a more concreteness to our reality, not less. Not more ethereal, not more you know, ghostly or spiritual in that sense, but more concrete, more and more and more. That's a qualitative difference, that life will be even more 
And as Jesus says here, what is this? This qualitative difference? It is that you know God and you know his son, Jesus Christ. That's the fundamental character or quality of what it is to have eternal life, to know God. Um, When I was in college uh, a couple of years ago and had become a, a recent Christian, one of the books that really made a deep impression on me, uh, as it did, I think, uh, within uh, my peers, uh, was J.I. Packer's uh, Knowing God. That, that was a very influential book um, a few decades ago. Um, and what really, I think, captured my imagination and the imagination of so many people then was this distinction that Packer makes between knowing about something and knowing something, right? Um, you know, I, I was a not, you know, I, I grew up in the church, uh, I had read the Bible, you know, um, I knew stuff about God, but when I read that book, it really, I realized, like, I knew a lot about God. In fact, I probably knew more about God, I knew more about the Bible than many of my Bible study leaders and some of these older guys, like, I, I knew more about it. But I realized, up until that moment, I did not know God in any personal, experiential sort of way. Right? You can know a lot about stuff without actually knowing it in a, in a deeper, intimate sense. Right? You, can, you, can read about, um, you can read about Niagara Falls. You, know, you, can, you can watch YouTube videos. Uh, you can read the history of the falls. You can hear testimony from people who visited there. Right? That, that's one kind of knowing, a knowing about. But if you actually go there, you know, and, you, and you've stood under the falls as the water just, just falls on you, right? that's a different kind of knowing. And, and that's what Jesus is getting at here. He's not saying, you know, I want you to learn theology and you know, learn to make correct statements about God as sort of this object to be studied. That is not knowing. That's not what he's talking about. He's saying, I want you to know God in a deep and personal sort of way. And, you know, the thing about knowing, knowing is only possible if both parties agree to do it. I can, I can wish I knew Beyonce, I don't, I don't know, somebody famous, right? Like, boy, I wish I could know her. You know, my desire, my burning desire is to know her. But she doesn't want to know me. She is not going to reveal herself to me in any personal, I mean, yeah, I guess she has you know, social media, so I can look that up. But she's not going to reveal herself to me. So there is, I cannot know her even if I want to. Right? Because you know, she's so famous and she's so beyond my, my status, right? But God, I mean, this, this, is, this, is, this is the thing that is like, how can this be? God Almighty, the creator of the universe, invites us to know him. Our desire is overmatched by God's desire to know us and to be known. And he reveals himself, he has revealed himself through nature, through the scriptures, through the Holy Spirit. He can be known at the the table, in the hearing of the word. God has made himself and has revealed himself and calls us to know him, to know the mind of God through the spirit of God. 
and fully reveal to us his character in his son, Jesus Christ. So he can be known. And that's what it is to have eternal life. This relationship that we can have with God, that is eternal life. Thirdly, according to Jesus, this eternal life is now. This is eternal life. This is not something that happens after you die. A lot of people think about eternal life as like, you know, you live your life and then you die and then you're resurrected and you have eternal life. It's what happens after you die. But no, Jesus says this is eternal life, not something that will happen later. Um, You know, when, when we talk about heaven and hell, you know, it's not really so much about space or, or places, but it's a way of, uh, of thinking about where God is and where God isn't. It's a present experience that you can have now. Um, again, when I was in college, one of the, this is really, uh, I don't know if this happens now, but during the first week of school, um, I, was at a part, I was at a social gathering, <laughs> and um, some guy came up to me and he said, if you were to die right now, do you know where you would go? You know, I'm just, first week of school, total stranger comes up to me and asks me that. I'm like, um, so, you know, I grew up in the church. I said, I, I guess I'm going to go to heaven. And he said, you know, how do you know that? And, you know, I, I don't recall what I said exactly, but, you know, that, that, it was a weird conversation, but that made me kind of, you know, yeah, where, what would happen? Um, now, the, the, right an- the right answer uh, that he was looking for is that, you know, I, you know, prayed, you know, Jesus into my heart or, you know, I had asked God for the forgiveness of my sins or I trusted Jesus or, or something along those lines, right? That if you say the right things or if you pray the right thing, then now you've got your, now you're ready for heaven, you know, no matter what happens, um, But that's not the way Jesus talks about it here. It's not about making some correct statements so that you can have this thing later on. It's it's not like, what is the minimum I have to believe or to know or to say or to pray so that I can ensure that I will have eternity with God or heaven after I die? That is not what eternal life is about. It's about having a relationship now. It's about knowing God now. And knowing God now means that you're going to live your life in a particular way. It's not like, you know, I I believe so I'm going to do whatever I want and it doesn't matter because I I said I believe and so that at the end of my life, even though I've done nothing to indicate that I genuinely believe anything, I'm going to heaven and have eternal life. Something else when I was in college. Uh, someone explained to me that, you know, the Christian faith or, or going to heaven and having eternity, it's like a pass-fail course. You, you don't get graded A, B, C, right? That it's pass or fail. You're either in or you out. And so you want to make sure that you're in. Because if you're out, you know, that's hell. And you don't, wanna, you don't, you don't want that, right? So you've you got to make sure that you're in. Now, I understand now that what they were trying to communicate was this ideal of uh, making a, a radical decision to follow Jesus Christ, that there ought to be a full-hearted commitment 
to follow Jesus, and I understand that. But, you know, when, when I was in college, and I thought it, what it mistakenly communicated to me was, okay, so there's a minimum bar, right? There's this sort of minimum passing grade about the Christian faith that as long as I meet that, I'm going to be okay, right? I, I don't have to... And, and you know, if you've taken pass-fail courses in school... What happens? Now, I know there's a couple of guys in that class who are going to work really hard and get an, you know, the equivalent of an A. But most of us, I know I did certainly, when I take a pass-fail class, I do it intentionally so that I can just pass. I'm not, you know, I just want a C or C- minus or whatever just to pass. I mean, that's what I'm thinking about. And so when Christianity is sort of presented this way, again, that's not the intent, but what happens is like, what's the minimum that I have to do to get into heaven and have everlasting life, right? What's the least amount of money I can give to the church? What's the least amount that I can pray? What's the, right? That's, that's the way we're, our, our mind begins to think about this. And when you're sort of thinking eternal life in those terms, you, you've completely missed the point. You, you've completely misunderstood what Jesus is talking about here. Because he says, this is eternal life, that you would know God. Jesus did not, you know, uh, give the Sermon on the Mount. At the end of it, he, you know, he didn't say, you know, by the way, guys, everything I've just taught you, it's optional. You don't have to do anything. As long as you say, Jesus is the Son of God and he died for my, it's okay. It's all optional. You don't have to know this, right? That's, as long as you got that minimum, you're okay. Did you know that to be considered an active member of this church of this, con- uh, of this denomination, you only have to come to one event every two years to be considered an active member of this church. One event. That's like one worship Sunday. So if you don't come here for two years, you would still be registered. If you are a member, you would still be registered on our roles as an active member of the church. That's in our constitution. Once every two years. But if you do that, are you really a member? I mean, is, is that what you want to do? I want to be a member of this church because they only expect me to be there once every two years. That is not what it means to be a part of the church. That is not what it means to be a member, right? You, you've missed the idea of what it is to participate in the life of the church if, if that's what you're thinking about, you know? If you're, if you're at a company and you're hiring someone for the job and the guy you're interviewing says, hey, what's the least amount of work I can do for this company and still keep my job? You are not going to hire that guy, right? I mean, technically, there is a minimum that they would have to do at your company, right? But is that, is that what it means? Or those of you who are married, like, can you imagine, like, you know, standing there taking your vows, saying, you know, I commit my life to be there for you for all... No. What's the minimum that I can do to stay in good standing in this marriage, right? What's the least I can do as a husband and still stay married? Like, don't marry that guy. <laughs> that is not, right? Now, again, there are, there is a minimum in marriage. There, there are some minimum things you've got to do. But if that's what you're worried about, if that's what you're thinking about, 
then that, that is not where you should be. That is not what marriage is. Just to say a, a couple of right things, if you think that's the minimum requirement to get into heaven and, and that's all you want, that, that is not what Jesus is talking about here. The question isn't about getting into heaven. It's, it's not like, you know, what do I have to do to get into Harvard? You know, I just want to make sure I do enough to, to get in. That's, that's what matters, just, just to get in. If I, do I have to pray this amount and then I'm, I'm assured? No, it's, it's not about that. Jesus says eternal life is knowing God and his son, Jesus Christ. That is eternal life. So it's really about, is this the kind of person that I want to be? Do I want to become the kind of person where I'm going to be with God? That's the question that we ought to be asking, not about getting in and getting out. Because if you don't want God in your life right now, then yeah, heaven, eternal, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be terrible. It's going to be absolute misery. You don't want God in your life now, you don't want God later. Why would you? You don't want God now. I love what uh, Dallas Willard said about this. He said this, I am thoroughly convinced that God will let everyone into heaven who in his considered opinion, can stand it. Right? God will let everyone into heaven who can stand it. I think that's a good definition. You want God? You want to know God? You want to be with God? You got it. You got it. You got eternal life. You don't want to have anything to do with God? God's going to honor that choice too. You have that freedom. God will let everyone in who can stand it. And you and I now can begin to experience that eternal life right now, not later. As we exercise our discipleship, as we live in obedience to his commands, as we know God and his character fills us, that's eternal life. Let, let me close with this. You know, as I said, this is eternal life according to Jesus, but of course, there will be a quality of eternal life that will be different um, after we die and at, after we are resurrected in our resurrected bodies. There will be certainly something different because we will have different kinds of bodies. Uh, we, we will not have to struggle with sin and so on. So there, there will be a difference. And, you know, when I first thought about the, the sermon this week, <clears throat> I, I want to kind of talk about that piece of it, but we'll... Consider that uh, next week. But um, as I said, in the beginning of the week, I I thought about this. And so the title of the sermon, in case you're wondering, um, came from uh, this idea. Uh, The the title actually comes from uh, a quote from The Lord of the Rings uh, by Tolkien. Um, At the end of The Lord of the Rings, um, you know, after the battle has been won and after, you know, um, there's peace and so on, uh, Sam Gamgee, one of the, the, the hobbits, uh, sees Gandalf, who you know, he thought had died, and he's surprised, right? And so this is a brief conversation that follows uh, toward the end. He says, Gandalf, I thought you were dead, but then I thought I was dead myself. Is everything sad going to come untrue? What's happened to the world? A great shadow has departed, said Gandalf. 
And then he laughed, and the sound was like music or like water in a parched land. That's Tolkien. I, I thought that was a beautiful imagining of what it will be. You know, there are a lot of sad things in this world. Even as we experience eternal life, even as we know God, there are a lot of sad things in this world. There are a lot of terrible things. But I I like the fact that Tolkien highlights there are a lot of sad things in the world. Right? Because the characters in that book, they go through a lot of bad and terrible things. But what is going to come untrue, he says here, is it's those sad things. The sad things. You know, when I was uh, first uh, preparing the sermon this week, I didn't realize um, how much this would mean to me this week. You know, most, most weeks I'm thinking about you guys um, and, you know, as I'm preparing. But sometimes there, there's a word that is, um, I feel like God has really uh, given for me as well. And, and this was one such word. Um, because I was reminded this week that sometimes intentionally, but sometimes unintentionally, mostly, I hope, uh, unintentionally, uh, I have caused unnecessary and great pain and sorrow in the lives of people I love. You know, um, by neglect, um, by saying the wrong word at the wrong time. uh, And I was reminded this week that I can cause pain and sorrow and sadness in people's lives. And I know that I can be forgiven. I know that our relationships can and hopefully will be uh, reconciled. And, and, I, and I know the hurt that I cause can be healed by God. I, I know that. I believe that. And I trust that. I, I pray for that. But it doesn't erase the suffering that I cause them. Right? It doesn't erase the tears I caused in their lives. And this is the great promise that one day we will be fully healed and fully restored. The promise of Revelation is that there will be no more tears. There will be no more crying. It will all somehow, as Tolkien writes, everything sad will become untrue. A great shadow has passed. And then there will be laughter. There will be joy in the presence of God eternally. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, we, we are thankful for your word. And sometimes we forget what it means when we say we have the promise and the reality of eternal life. Help us to live today as a people who know you, as a people who have experienced your grace, people filled with your spirit, people who walk in obedient discipleship in the way of love and peace and joy. And help us that whatever sorrows we may face today, that we have a hope that one day, that one day, all of it, will be redeemed. We thank you and we pray all this in Jesus' name.
Amen.